The Punishments of Sin by Thomas Ridgely Westminster Larger Catechism Question 28 What are the punishments of sin in this world? Answer The punishments of sin in this world are either inward, as blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and all vile affections, or outward, as the curse of God upon the creatures for our sakes, and all other evils that befall us in our bodies, names, estates, relations, and employments, together with death itself. The Punishments of Sin in the Present Life In the former of these answers we have an account of those punishments to which sin exposes men in this world. These are distinguished as either inward or outward, personal or relative. Those which are styled outward respect more especially our condition in the world, as we are liable to many adverse dispensations of providence, and are generally reckoned by sinners the greatest, as they are the most sensible, subjecting them to the many evils and miseries which befall them in their bodies, names, estates, relations, and employments, and as they end in death, the most formidable of all evils. In reality, however, the punishments of sin which are styled inward, such as blindness of men, hardness of heart, etc., how little soever they are regarded by those who fall under them, are by far the greatest and most dreaded by all who truly fear God and see things in a just light, being duly affected with that which would render them most miserable in the end. We shall consider first the punishments which are called inward. These respect either the understanding, will, conscience, or affections. Blindness of Mind We are said to be exposed to blindness of mind. This the Apostle describes in a most moving way when he speaks of the Gentiles as, quote, walking in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, unquote. Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 18. Ignorance and error are defects of the understanding, in consequence of which it is not able to find out or desirous to inquire after the way of truth and peace. Accordingly, the Apostle says, The way of peace have they not known, Romans 3, verse 17. By reason of this, we are naturally inclined to deny those doctrines which are of the greatest importance, namely, such as more immediately concern the glory of God and our own salvation. This ignorance is certainly most dangerous and cannot be exempted from the charge of sin, much more when we are judicially left to it as a punishment for other sins committed by us. Strong Delusion Another punishment of sin mentioned in this answer is strong delusion. This is the consequence of the former. That it is a punishment of sin is inferred from the Apostle's words, quote, For this cause God shall send a strong delusion that they should believe a lie, unquote. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11. The meaning is that God suffers those who receive not the love of truth, but take pleasure in unrighteousness, to be deluded, by denying them that spiritual and saving illumination which would effectually prevent their delusion. Now, that we may consider what the Apostle means by strong delusion, we may observe that every error or mistake in lesser matters of religion is not intended, for then few or none would be exempted from this judgment. But it includes a person's entertaining the most abominable absurdities in matters of religion, which are contrary to the divine perfections, and the whole tenor of Scripture, and subversive of those truths which are of the greatest importance, or pretension to revelations, or a turning away from the truth by giving credit to the amusements of signs and lying wonders. Antichrist is said to come with such signs and lying wonders after the working of Satan, and the consequence is that his followers believe a lie which they suppose to be confirmed by them. 
errors in matters of religion are sometimes invincible and unavoidable for want of objective light or scripture revelation, as in heathens, Mohammedans, and others, who through the disadvantages and prejudices of education are estranged from the truth. But even the ignorance of these in some respects may be said to be judicial, for though they do not sin against gospel light, yet they are guilty of other sins which justly provoke God to leave them in this state of darkness and ignorance. But the punishment of sin, when God gives men up to this judgment, is more visible in those who have had advantages of education above others, and have had early instructions in the doctrines of the gospel, and who by degrees have turned aside from them and denied them, and so forsake the guide of their youth. Proverbs 2, verse 17. These sometimes call those sentiments about religious matters which they once received implicit faith, and please themselves with their new schemes of doctrine, looking, as they say with pity, I might rather say disdain on others who are not disentangled from their fetters or have not shaken off the prejudices of education or arrived at so free and generous a way of thinking as these pretended to have done. But how much soever they may glory in it, it is a sad instance of God's giving them up to the vanity and delusion of their minds. Accordingly, they believe that to be a truth which others can prove to be a lie and which they themselves once thought so. Now, that this is a punishment of sin appears from the fact that the gospel which once they professed it to believe, had not its due effect or tendency to subdue their lusts and corruptions. They rebelled against the light and were under the power of presumptuous sins. Their understanding and talents of reasoning have been enlarged, and at the same time the pride and vanity of their minds have not been subdued and mortified by the grace of God. Hence, they have been given up first to question, then to deny, and afterwards to oppose, and in the most profane and invidious manner, to ridicule those sacred and important truths which they once received. This is a sad instance of the punishment of sin, and I would make some use of it in a few practical inferences. We ought not to be content with a mere speculative knowledge of divine truths, but should endeavor to improve them to promote practical godliness, as they have a tendency to do in all those who, as the Apostle says, have so learned Christ, that they have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Ephesians 4 verse 21. Nor ought we to content ourselves with an implicit faith or to believe the doctrines of the gospel merely because they have been received by wise and good men in former or later ages, but should be able to render a reason of the faith and hope that is in us as built upon clear scripture evidence. On the other hand, we must take heed that we do not despise the many testimonies which God's people have given to the truth or forsake the footsteps of the flock, as though God had left his servants to delusions or groundless doctrines, and as though there were no light in the world or the church, till those who have studiously endeavored to overthrow the faith delivered to and maintained by the saints brought in that which they, with vain boasting, call new light. Further, let us strive against the pride of our understanding, which oftentimes tempts us to disbelieve any doctrine which we cannot fully account for by our shallow methods of reasoning, as though we were the only men who knew anything, and as though, as Job says, wisdom must die with us. Job 12, verse 2. Again, if we are in doubt concerning any important truth, let us apply ourselves by faith and prayer to Christ, the great prophet of his church, who has promised his spirit to lead his people into all necessary truth to establish them in it, and to keep them from being turned aside from it by every wind of doctrine, through the management and sophistry of those who lie and wait to deceive. We ought also to bless God for and to make a right use of the labors of others, who have not only been led into the knowledge of the gospel themselves, but have taken much pains, and that with good success, to establish the faith of others therein. Finally, if we have attained to a settled knowledge of the truth, more especially if we have been blessed with a spiritual and practical discerning of it, let us bless God for it, and endeavor to improve it for the best purposes. 
Our doing this will be a preservative against the sore judgment of being given up to the blindness of our minds or strong delusions, and thereby to forsake our first faith. Hardness of heart. Another punishment of sin is hardness of heart and a reprobate sense. This more especially respects the will, and is inflicted when men are given up to the perverseness and obstinacy of their natures, so that they are fixedly resolved to continue in sin, whatever be the consequence, and cannot bear reproof for it and refuse to be reclaimed from it, whatever methods are used for recovering them. Thus, though the prophet describes the people as having had forewarnings by sore judgments, and as being at the time under sad rebukes of providence, yet God says concerning them, quote, They will not hearken unto me, for all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted, unquote. Ezekiel 3, verse 7. The Apostle also speaks of some who have their consciences seared with a hot iron, 1 Timothy 4.2, and of others as sinning willfully, Hebrews 10, verse 26, that is, resolutely being headstrong and determined to persist in their iniquity, like the man described in Job, quote, who stretched out his hand against God and strengthened himself against the Almighty. He runneth upon him, even upon his neck, upon the thick bosses of his bucklers, unquote. Job 15, verse 25. In this manner, corrupt nature expresses its enmity and opposition to God, and when sinners are suffered to go on in this way, it may well be reckoned a punishment of sin or an instance of God's judicial hand against them for it. This hardness of heart is sometimes compared to a stone, Ezekiel 36, verse 6, or a rock, Jeremiah 33, verse 29, or an adamant, which is hardly broken with a hammer, Zechariah 7, verse 12, or an iron sinew, Sometimes also, their brow is said to be as brass, Isaiah 48, verse 4, and at other times they are compared to a swift dromedary traversing her ways, to the wild ass, used to the wilderness, that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure, Jeremiah 2, verses 23 to 24, to the bullock unaccustomed to the yoke, Jeremiah 31, verse 18, or to the deaf adder that stoppeth her ears, that will not hearken to the voice of the charmers, charming never so wisely, Psalm 58, verses 4 to 5. This stupidity of the heart of man is so great that it inclines him to go on in a course of rebellion against God and at the same time to conclude all things to be well. This is the most dangerous symptom and a visible instance of God's judicial hand as a punishment of sin in this life. There are several instances in which this hardness of heart discovers itself. One instance is when men are not afraid of God's judgments threatened, do not regard the warnings given of them beforehand, or when they refuse to humble themselves under them, as God says of Pharaoh, quote, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Unquote. Exodus 10, verse 3. Another instance is when they stifle and do not regard those convictions of conscience which they sometimes have, or when, though they know that what they do is sinful and displeasing to God, they break through all the restraints which should have prevented their committing it. Who, knowing the judgment of God, says the Apostle, that they who commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Romans 1, verse 32. Again, men may be said to be hardened in sin when they do mourn for it or repent of it after they have committed it, but on the other hand, endeavor to conceal, extenuate, and plead for it rather than forsake it. Here we may inquire what those sins are which more especially lead to this judgment of hardness of heart. One is a neglect of ordinances, such as the word preached, as though we counted it an indifferent matter, whether we wait at wisdom's gate or not, or whether we make a visible profession of subjection to Christ and desire of communion with him, and particularly when we live in the constant neglect of secret prayer. Accordingly, the hardened sinner is thus described, quote, Yea, thou castest off fear and restrainest prayer before God, unquote. 
Job 15, verse 4. Another sin leading to it is a person's delighting in or associating himself with such companions as are empty and vain, express an enmity to the power of godliness, and frequently make things sacred the subject of their ridicule. Choosing such for his bosom friends, who cannot bear to converse about divine things, but rather depreciate or cast contempt on them. Such an one is called a companion of fools, and is contrasted to those that walk with wise men who shall be wise. Proverbs 13, verse 20. There is no method which will have a more direct tendency to harden the heart, or root out any of the remains of serious religion than this. A third sin, tending to hardness of heart, is a shunning of faithful reproof, or concluding those to be our enemies who, because they administer to us faithful reproof, are our best friends. He who cannot bear to be told of his crimes by others will in a little while cease to be a reprover of himself, and in consequence will be exposed to the judgment of hardness of heart. A fourth sin leading to this judgment is our venturing on occasions of sin, or committing it presumptuously, without considering its heinous aggravations or the danger which will follow. These things will certainly bring on us a very great degree of hardness of heart. Judicial Hardness or Natural Corruption But as there are some who are afraid of falling under this judgment, and are ready to complain that the hardness which they find in their own hearts is of a judicial nature, we shall inquire what the difference is between that hardness of heart which believers often complain of, and the judicial hardness which is considered in this answer as a punishment of sin. There is nothing that a believer more complains of than the hardness and impenitency of his heart, its lukewarmness and stupidity under the ordinances, and there is nothing that he more desires than to have this redressed. He is sometimes also not without a degree of fear, lest he should be given up to judicial hardness. Now, to prevent discouragements of this nature, let it be considered that judicial hardness is very seldom perceived and never lamented. A broken and a contrite heart is the thing which the judicially hardened at least desire but it is otherwise with believers. As it is said of Hezekiah that he was humbled for the pride of his heart, Second Chronicles 32, verse 26, So all they who have the truth of grace, and none but such, are exceedingly grieved for the hardness of their heart. This is an evidence that it is not judicial, how much soever it be, in common with every sin, the result of the corruption of nature and the imperfection of the present state. Again, judicial hardness is perpetual, or if ever there be any remorse or relenting, or the soul is distressed by reason of its guilt or the prevalency of sin, it is only at such times when he is under some outward afflictions or filled with the dread of the wrath of God. And as this wears off or abates, his stupidity returns as much or more than ever. Thus it was with Pharaoh. When he was affrighted with the mighty thundering and hail with which he was plagued, he sent for Moses and Aaron and said unto them, I have sinned. The Lord is righteous, and I and my people are wicked. Exodus 9, verse 27. But when the plague was removed, it is said that he sinned yet more and hardened his heart. It is otherwise, however, with a believer. Sometimes when no adverse dispensations with respect to his outward circumstances in the world trouble him, he is full of complaints and greatly afflicted that his heart is no more affected in holy duties or inflamed with love to God or zeal for his glory or that he cannot delight in him as he would or obtain a complete victory over indwelling sin which is his constant burden. And whenever he has a degree of tenderness or brokenness of heart under a sense of sin, It is not merely fear of the wrath of God as a sin-revenging judge, or of the dreadful consequences of sin committed which occasions it, but a due sense of that ingratitude and disingenuity which there is in every act of rebellion against him who has laid him under such inexpressible obligations to obedience. Further, judicial hardness is attended with a total neglect of all holy duties, more especially those which are secret. But that hardness of heart which a believer complains of, 
though it occasion his going on very uncomfortably in duty, yet rather incites him to it than drives him from it. Moreover, when a person is judicially hardened, he makes use of indirect and unwarrantable methods to maintain that false peace which he thinks himself happy in the enjoyment of. That which he betakes himself to deserves no better a character than a refuge of lies, and the peace he rejoices in deserves no better a name than stupidity. But a believer, when complaining of the hardness of his heart, cannot take up with anything short of Christ and his righteousness. It is his presence which gives him peace, and he always desires that faith may accompany his repentance, that so, whenever he mourns for sin, the comfortable sense of his interest in him may afford him a solid and lasting peace. This is vastly different from that stupidity and hardness of heart which is a punishment of sin. A reprobate mind. There is another expression in this answer, a reprobate sense, or as the Apostle calls it, a reprobate mind, Romans 1.28, which denotes little more than a greater degree of judicial hardness. This God is said to have given those up to who did not like to retain him in their knowledge. The meaning is that persons by a course of sin render their hearts so hard their wills so obstinate and depraved, as well as their understandings so dark and defiled, that they hardly retain those notices of good and evil which are stamped on the nature of man, and which at times have a tendency to check and restrain from sin. These become entirely lost, and are extinguished by the prevalency of corrupt nature, and a continued course of presumptuous sins, and as the result of this, they extenuate and excuse the greatest abominations. Thus Ephraim is represented as saying, quote, in all my labors they shall find none iniquity in me that were sin, unquote. Hosea 12, verse 8. Whereas God says in the following verse that they provoked him to anger most bitterly, Hosea 12, verse 14. Persons who are given up to a reprobate mind eventually entertain favorable thoughts of the vilest actions. Quote, they call evil good and good evil. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. They put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, unquote. Isaiah 5, verse 20. Vile affections. The next spiritual judgment mentioned in this answer as a punishment of sin is a person's being given up to vile affections. This God is said to have done to those whom the Apostle describes as giving themselves over to the committing of those sins which are contrary to nature, Romans 1 verse 26, such as all men abhor who do not abandon themselves to the most notorious crimes. This is a contracting of that guilt which is repugnant to those natural ideas of virtue and vice, which even an unregenerate man, who has not arrived to this degree of impiety, cannot but abhor. These are such as are not to be named among Christians, or thought of without the utmost regret, and an afflictive sense of the degeneracy of human nature. Horror of Conscience The last thing mentioned in this answer, in which the inward punishment of sin in this life consists, is horror of conscience. Under the foregoing instances of spiritual judgments, conscience seemed to be asleep, but now it is awakened, and that by the immediate hand of God, and this is attended with the dread of his wrath. Horror and despair are the result. Quote, the arrows of the Almighty are within him, the poison whereof drinketh up his spirit, the terrors of God do set themselves in array against him. Unquote. Job 6 verse 4. Quote, terrors take hold on him as waters, a tempest stealeth him away in the night. The east wind carrieth him away, and he departeth, and as a storm hurleth him out of his place. For God shall cast upon him and not spare, he would fain flee out of his hand. Unquote. Job 27, verses 20 to 22. This differs from those doubts and fears which are common to believers, inasmuch as it is attended with despair and a dreadful view of God as a God to whom vengeance belongeth, and is attended, as the Apostle says, quote, 
with a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. Unquote. Hebrews 10, verse 27. Before experiencing it, the sinner took a great deal of pains to stifle convictions of conscience, and now he would fain do it, but cannot. This is a sad instance of the wrath of God pouring forth gall and wormwood, according to the prophet's words, quote, Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee, unquote. Jeremiah 2, verse 19. Comfort for Believers But, now that we are speaking concerning horror of conscience, we must take heed lest we give occasion to doubting believers, who are under great distress of soul through a sense of sin, to apply what has been said to themselves for their farther discouragement, and to conclude that this is a judicial act of God and a certain evidence that they have not the truth of grace. There is a difference in three respects between that horror of conscience which we have been describing and that distress of soul to which believers are often liable. The unregenerated, under horror of conscience, flee from God as from an enemy and desire only to be delivered from his wrath and not from sin the occasion of it. The believer, on the contrary, desires nothing so much as that his iniquity, which is the occasion of it, may be subdued and forgiven, and that he may have that communion with God which he is destitute of. In order to this, he constantly desires to draw nigh to him in ordinances, and if he cannot enjoy him, he mourns after him. Thus the psalmist complaineth, as one in the utmost degree of distress, quote, Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and thou hast afflicted me with all thy waves, unquote. Psalm 88, verse 7. Yes, he says, quote, Unto thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent thee, unquote. verse 13. Again, the one reproaches God and entertains unworthy thoughts of him, as though he were severe, cruel, and unjust to him, while the other, with a humble and penitent frame of spirit, complains only of himself, acknowledges that there is no unrighteousness with God, and lays all the blame on his own iniquity. Further, horror of conscience, when it is judicial, seldom continues any longer than while a person is under some outward afflictive dispensation of providence. Under this his sin is increased, and the removal of it leaves him as stupid as he was before. But it is otherwise with a believer. The removal of God's afflicting hand as to outward troubles will not afford him any remedy against his fears unless sin be mortified, and God is pleased to lift up the light of his countenance upon him and give him joy and peace in believing. This reading is an excerpt from Thomas Ridgely's Commentary on the Larger Catechism, available from Stillwater's Revival Books. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. 
You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.